Let's begin. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samudassa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samudassa. Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa. So tonight's talk consists of your questions. And I've got many good and interesting questions. And I will start with one question which I found very interesting quite a profound question. And so I had to think for quite a bit to find the answer. And so here is my very profound answer to this question. Where do all the millipedes come from? <laughs> Where are they going? <laughs> So I have two answers. The first one is, they come from the grass of the right side of the path, and they go to the grass to the left side of the path. <laughs> Second answer, they come from home, and they are going to the movies. And so they stop in the middle of the path, and then they watch this weird two-legged creatures walking by, marveling, how can they walk with only two legs? <laughs> Why don't they need 1,000 legs as we do? Okay. <laughs> Another question. Could you please comment on the relationship between just be aware and investigation of the three characteristics? To what extent can investigation lead to over-conceptualization? Okay, so to just be aware or to be mindful or to be present, this is sati, mindfulness. As I have explained, it's just this ability to be aware, to be present, to be alert with the present object and to be, really be in contact with that object, with that experience. So sati alone does not really understand the nature of the object or the experience. Sati alone does not lead to insight or wisdom, as I've said uh, before. So it's this mental factor called panya, insight, understanding, wisdom, which needs to be also present, 
and which is the one that you know sees that for example there is the stickiness of loba of greed attachment uh, sees that attaching sensation is experienced as hard or as warm or as cold and So, where comes the investigation into place? One of the pochangas, the seven factors of awakening, is called Dhamma which is usually translated as investigation of Dhammas, basically investigation of whatever is present in any given experience any given object we are mindful of. And so it is said that Vijaya uh, is like a synonym to Panya, like a synonym to insight, understanding, wisdom. And so this Dhamma Vijaya can take on different forms. So in a most general sense in the Dhamma, like in trying to understand the Dhamma, this can also have the form of, you know, thinking about the Dhamma, analyzing the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma. So use our um, mind, the, the faculty of reflection, of analyzing, of intellectualization, so that's one level, which is helpful, which might be a good base then for get to the other level, which is the investigation in the meditation practice, in vipassana meditation, when we are, you know, as you know, we should not be thinking about the experience or analyzing it. Uh, on a rational, rational level, but just being with the experience and then kind of let the experience speak by itself. And so when uh, Panya or Dhamma is present, so then it's through this uh, mental factor that the experience is investigated, but not on an intellectual level, not rationalizing, but just by being with the experience, knowing it as it is manifesting right now. So in this way, um, the experience then is seen more clearly, so then the specific characteristics and the general characteristics will become apparent then they are known. And in the unfolding of insight and understanding, it's usually that first the specific characteristics of an object of any given experience is understood first of all. So let's take a touching sensation for example. So, you know, then 
a touching sensation as it is being experienced as something hard and cold. So noticing while well, it's hard, then seeing the specific characteristic of the earth element and then knowing, experiencing directly that it is cold, so knowing that it is cold, understanding that it is cold, that's understanding the specific characteristic of the fire element, for example. And likewise, you know, it can happen with mental phenomena. And so, later on then, in the practice of Vipassana meditation, when mindfulness gets better, sharper, when the mind gets more one-pointed or focused, concentrated. So then an object, an experience is seen more clearly. And so then, for example, the arising and passing away of that touching sensation becomes aware one becomes aware of, or the arising and passing away of a painful sensation, and so on. And so, in this way, one gradually comes to understand the impermanent nature, the anicca nature of this object or experience. And, as I've said before, anicca impermanence is one of the three general characteristics. And likewise, then one becomes aware of the dukkha nature, the unsatisfactory nature of this experience, and also one understands the third general characteristic, that of anatta, not self, seeing it as an impersonal process arising and passing away, depending on causes and condition. So in the course of the Vipassana meditation practice, there is no need to specifically look for the three characteristics. There is no need to specifically kind of investigate the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and the not-self nature. As one is doing the practice, naturally, as a result of just diligently doing the practice, these general characteristics become apparent, they become clear. So it happens on, it, uh, on its own accord when the time is ripe for it. Otherwise, if mindfulness concentration is not yet good enough and we and we and if we think, oh well I should investigate these three general characteristics. But then we just stress ourselves and we get tense and uh, get frustrated when they are not apparent and obvious in one's experience. And, you know, they are called the three general characteristics. So they are there. They can be seen and experienced and understood in any given object or uh, experience because they are general characteristics.
Okay. There are a few questions that um, relate to how to practice in day-to-day -day life or how to integrate the practice in day-to-day -day life. And I will deal with these questions tomorrow in the closing round. <clears throat> Another question. Does practicing samatha to enter jhana have a place among the meditations you have taught us during this retreat? Some teachers say that vipassana is only worth practicing after entering a jhana. What are your thoughts? So first of all, all these four protective meditations that I have talked about, that I have explained, that you have practiced, they all can be taken as an object to practice samatha meditation, that means to deepen the concentration and one can enter the jhana. So whether one is doing Buddha no sati, reflecting on the attributes of the Buddha, whether one is doing metta, bhavana, developing loving-kindness, whether one is uh, doing the reflection on the 32 parts of the body, or whether one is doing the Mahanasati, the reflection on death. So these four meditations are among the 40 objects that can be taken for Samatha meditation that lead to the jhanas. So samatha means concentration, the jhana, they are the absorption, like very deep states of concentration. So to take these four protective meditations, one of them, and practice them in order to attain the jhana, so one needs to do it very systematically and you know, from early morning until late at night, just doing that, just repeating these phrases or these words so that the mind becomes very, very one-pointed, very deeply concentrated. Then, yes, yeah, some teachers say one should, one can only practice vipassana meditation after first having attained a jhana. And actually, if one practices the jhana, so one enters a jhana, abides in this deep absorption, but if one wants to practice vipassana meditation, one needs to come out of the jhana. One needs to emerge from the jhana and then do the vipassana approach. Because by its nature, um, being absorbed in a jhana, being deeply absorbed in an object, it's just this still mind resting on that particular object. So it's not about getting to know the nature of this object. 
And anyway, very often for the jhanas, a concept is taken as the object, not absolute reality. And in order um, to get insights, understanding, liberating wisdom, one needs to observe absolute realities, not concepts. So one needs to emerge from the jhana, but then the mind is so deeply concentrated, or the concentration is so deep that the mind is very clear, that the mind is free from the hindrances, and so this great clarity of the mind helps very much to see clearly what is happening, like the experience of the breath, movement, sensations, um, then thoughts uh, that might arise. So the mind is so sharp and so clear that um, objects, um, experiences in body and mind are seen very clearly. And so that, of course, is very conducive for insight and understanding to arise. As I said, when the mind is deeply concentrated, absorbed in the jhanas, then the mind is free from the hindrances. You know, the common or five hindrances basically are desire, greed, aversion, hatred, sloth and torpor, restlessness, remorse, and skeptical doubt. So the, it means that the mind is free from these hindrances. Now, this deep state of concentration where the mind is free from the hindrances can also be achieved with another kind of concentration that is not the jhana. And this is called kaniga samadhi, which means momentary concentration. And this momentary concentration is said to be so deep that the mind is free from the hindrances. What is kind of said as being the requisite to uh, do vipassana meditation or um, so that insight, understanding can arise. And so this Kanika Samadhi comes about by practicing the vipassana meditation. It's called momentary concentration because the mind is deeply focused on the object from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And that's why it is so important in the Vipassana practice that we try to have our mindfulness continuous, like the mindfulness that is really aware from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And so when the mindfulness can be maintained over a certain period of time, when it is continuous, moment to moment to moment, so then, hand in hand, concentration deepens because then the mind is concentrated from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. To moment. And 
you know, in samatha, we limit ourselves to one object and the mind is deeply concentrated on that one single object we have chosen. In Vipassana meditation, as you know, we do not limit our focus or awareness on one object, one experience, but whatever comes into the foreground becomes the object of our awareness. And so, if we have the mindfulness constant, you know, being with the experience of the breath, rising and falling, rising and falling, and then notice uh, an itch arising on the arm. And so this is, you know, the next moment we are aware of the itch, and we are aware of that from moment to moment to moment. See the itch disappearing, and then the next moment... um, go back to the rising and falling and then we notice the thought popping up and are aware of that and we notice the thought disappearing. We are aware of that and the next moment again, rising and falling. So in this way, the mind is momentarily concentrated. The objects change, but the concentration is there. It's also constant. And so this allows this kaniga samadhi, this momentary concentration, to become so deep and strong that it also has the power to free the mind from the hindrances. And so, in this regard, the jhana concentration and this momentary concentration are, by its function, equal. So that is why that some teachers say it's not necessary to first uh, practice and attain the jhanas for being able to do proper vipassana meditation. And in the Buddhist scriptures, the two approaches are mentioned, like the approach that has the samatha meditation with the jhanas as the base for the vipassana meditation practice. But then also there is mentioned the approach of only uh, practicing vipassana meditation by developing this kaniga samadhi. And This approach of, you know, just doing the vipassana meditation practice is translated as dry vipassana. (laughs) It's not so dry, but that's the translation. (laughs) And... So from my own personal experience of my practice, having practiced basically this dry vipassana, I can say it works. It leads to deep understanding and insights, liberating wisdom. So there's no doubt. Next question.
I have been asked to lead meditation sessions at work once a week at lunchtime for 30 minutes. What do you recommend as a good format to follow given the group consists of new and experienced meditators? So first of all, I think if, you know, at work where there are also new meditators, those who have no experience in meditation, then I think the instructions to lead such a meditation um, during lunchtime should be directed or should be um, designed for the new meditators so that they do not get um, you know, confused or that they are lost with some instructions they are not familiar with. So to really uh, keep it simple. So then the person mentioned a few things. For example, just to focus on the breath. Yes, that could be an instruction to give. It could also be, one could instruct people to count the breaths, just so that they have something to do. Or bodily sensations, yes, that's another good way of giving instructions to notice bodily sensations in the body. Here also one could do kind of a guided body scan guide people through the body from head to toe. Or thoughts appearing, disappearing. Well, for completely inexperienced meditators, people who are not meditators, this might be a bit difficult and challenging and might be rather causing to restlessness or people thinking, well, I can't do that or are overwhelmed by thoughts. So maybe a bit um, being cautious with that. Or should I try walking meditation? Yes, that would be another possibility if there is enough space for people to do it. Another possibility would be to do standing meditation, have people stand focus on the standing, feet touching the ground, uh, being aware of the breath, something like that. Or use some slow movements that people can be aware of. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there are a set of exercises called kumye, Maybe you've heard of them. Um, these are very simple movements one does and really tries to be mindful of. Um, can be a simple movement like just very, very slowly, like a snail, move. Now I'm already fast. <laughs> um, raise the arms up, you know, until they are up here. And then slowly down again. Something like that. Or 
um, bringing the hands up in front of the body, stretching them out and then bringing them down on the side of the body until they come together in front of the body. So these uh, exercises or any slow movements <coughs> be a good way to bring awareness into the body. Then another question, well it's from two people but uh, dealing kind of with the same thing. There is so much natural beauty in the world and it seems that the Dhamma actually makes it easier to rest in the peace and tranquility of nature. Yet you seem to be saying that the beautiful view incites craving. Can you address that apparent conflict? And the other question is, quote, craving is to be abandoned, unquote. I'm very keen to do that and find myself craving to abandon craving. <laughs> Please comment on ways to engage in the path that are not tinged or completely infected by craving. Yes. So you know, the Buddha actually recommended a conducive place for meditation and he mentioned places in nature at the foot of a tree on a hilltop, on a heap of straw, <laughs> or on an open clearing, or in a cave. So as a matter of fact, yes, nature is a good place to be for practicing meditation. It inspires it with the natural beauty that is around. It gladdens the mind gladdens the heart, it brings joy and happiness. And one of the supportive factors for concentration to arise is a happy mind. So if we can take something that makes the mind easily um, happy, yes, then we should make use of that. You know, if something, is it something home wholesome, not detrimental, harmful to others, or unwholesome. So, yeah, beautiful nature as a supportive condition for the mind to be happy, and that as a supportive condition for the mind to be able to concentrate. But you know, as we know from our experience, what is beautiful is accompanied by a pleasant feeling tone. And when I speak of pleasant feeling tone, I refer to Vedana. There are three types of Vedana. Pleasant, 
unpleasant and neutral. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And each experience that we make through the six sense doors is accompanied by one of these Vedanas. It's experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so, you know, the habitual reaction is that pleasant feelings, they uh, can trigger wanting, desire, attachment, craving. Unpleasant feelings, they usually trigger aversion, uh, ill will, anger, um, rejection, and so on. And it is said that the neutral feeling, they usually um, let an indifference, trigger indifference, which is um, like uh, ignorance, delusion, not knowing. So these three types of Vedana correspond to the three main defilements. Pleasant basically triggers loba, unpleasant Vedana triggers dosa, and the neutral Vedana triggers moha. So, you know, when I quoted the Buddha saying, craving needs to be abandoned, or um, that the Buddha said, that, you know, the, that unenlightened beings um, are not able to enjoy sense pleasures without um, craving or getting attached to them. So, you know, we should investigate and see whether um, experiencing a nice, pleasurable object experience, whether it's tinged by any form of loba, wanting, desire, craving, attachment, or not. And, you know, it can be outright loba, very obvious that the desire for it, you know, when it has disappeared, we want it to happen again, is very gross, very obvious. But then there are more subtle forms, and there are very, very, very subtle forms of um, attachment and wanting and just craving a little bit for it. So this is um, our practice to really investigate whether it's present or not. But of course, you know, we live in this world and we are not yet fully enlightened. So uh, to say I should not enjoy anything beautiful because there is most likely craving, that's also not the way to go. <laughs> As I said, you know, like a suitable place for meditation out in nature. Yes, we, we choose that. And even if there is some degree of attachment or craving for that, okay, okay, you know, we let it be. And, you know, at least being attached to that 
we do not harm others by that. It's not detrimental to others. Um, there is no big obvious injury or harm we do to ourselves. So, you know, it's better to be a little bit attached and derive some sense pleasures from the beauty of nature than to resort to alcohol and drugs and other things. And also, you know, I mean, well, to see that, you know, can I really find a place in myself where the heart, the mind can rest in peace, not wanting anything to be different, not needing to depend on any outer circumstances for my happiness, for my well-being, for my peace. You know, the Buddha was aiming at that. So, you know, the bar is very high. <laughs> you know, that's our long-term goal, to get there. And so, as I said, you know, we are still on the way. We know there is still some loba, some dosa, some moha around. But with our discerning wisdom and understanding of the Dhamma, yes, then we resort to uh, the pleasure uh, derived from, from nature instead of the pleasure derived from alcohol or committing any uh, unwholesome deeds. Um, as I said, you know, these forms of loba, dosa, moha, they can be very, very subtle. And because we do not see it so clearly, we just do not see them, we just do not recognize them. The other day, one meditator was relating an experience uh, in regard to the metta practice, saying that she was radiating metta to her father, as a difficult person, and she said, you know, she thought, oh yeah, I just have this genuine pure metta for my father to be well, happy and peaceful. Thinking, oh yeah, I can do that for my father. But then as she was doing it, later on she noticed, well, it's not that pure, because actually I wish my father to be well, happy and peaceful, so that becomes so that he becomes easier to be with. <laughs> so you know, at the, at the outset, it thought she thought that yeah, it was this pure, genuine metta, not tinged by a selfish motive. But then she had to admit, oh well, there was this subtle, um, you know. It was tinged by this subtle expectation or, you know, it was not unconditional. There was a condition. And in the same kind of way, you know, sometimes things are obvious and we still don't see them. I noticed, you know, in front of the dining hall, I sit down on the bench to 
take off my shoes. And then sometimes my eyes go into the distance. Um, one can see the path that goes through the forest and there is a little um, patch of grass. And a few days ago, when I first walked over there, I noticed there was a chair not so far from the path uh, there, facing this way. Thank you. Oh, I thought, oh, this is this chair. And then the next time I sat down on the bench in front of the dining hall to take my shoes off, glancing over there, I noticed the chair <laughs> for the first time. And for many days, I had looked over, seen that patch where there were no trees, and I never saw the, the chair, although it was so obvious. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's delusion, not seeing things, although they are clearly there. So, coming back to, you know, the craving, craving to be abandoned. Of course, we want to abandon the craving, you know, and if it were very easy, we would say, okay, no more cra craving from now on. <laughs> easy peasy. <laughs> um, but we know it's not that easy as this. And so, you know, that's what the practice is all about, to notice the craving, the desire, the attachment, when it's there. You know, not to kind of, is, it, is there craving, is there not? Noticing when it's there. And then, watching it, and then seeing that it disappears by itself. We don't need to act on each and every desire or craving to have it disappear. For example, you know, you observe an itch, or an itch arises, and the habitual reaction is, well, wanting to scratch, and one goes and scratches the itch. So, the, the desire to scratch has disappeared, and the itch also, uh, there is relief from it. But one could simply be aware of the itch, noting the sensation of itchiness, and then one notices the desire to scratch, and one simply could be with that desire to scratch. Just note it, note it, note it, and you know, it might become stronger, you know, go and scratch, you know, it's unpleasant, you know, do it, do it, you will get relief, you know, just do it. You know, it's not such an unwholesome action, you know, you don't hurt anybody else, and um, just give in, you know, do it, and then it's over. So you sit there and you watch it, you know, all these reactions, you know, and. Then you notice after some time the desire to scratch just disappears, it just dissolves. The itch is still there and you observe it and you notice how the itch disappears. So in this way, you know, we can train ourselves that there is no need to give in to each and every desire. I mean, this is a harmless example, you know, but in day-to-day -day life, 
how many times you know we just act impulsively on a desire, a craving, a little wanting of this, a little wanting of not that. You know, or sometimes really, what can be helpful um, to, to, to make a determination to, for example, not look around during walking meditation, you know, to resist the temptation, the desire to look what is over here. You know, you see something moving in the corner of your eyes and, oh, what is it? Wanting to look. can be quite challenging, you know, but it's so good to know that we have the freedom to not follow every desire. Um, many years ago, I was on Maui, one of the islands in Hawaii, you know, at the place where Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong have set up Dhamma Sanctuary. I was there to work on a book of Mahasi Sayadaw, work on the translation of the Manual of Insight. But actually before that, I participated in a re retreat that Kamala and Steve were um, leading. It was in a rented place, beautiful place, and the dining hall had a Veranda, so one could also sit outside and have one's meals. At that time, I was a nun, and so they gave me uh, a separate table, and they gave me the only table um, on the veranda from where one could see down to the ocean, you could see the shore, the cliffs. It was quite spectacular. So. I was sitting there on my table and trying to mindfully eat <laughs> my lunch, you know, trying to restrain my eyes, but then, you know, desire to look, I mean, to be such in a beautiful place and not enjoy the scenery, I mean. <laughs> so noting the desire to watch, to, to look, and then, whoops, noticing that looking down, very nice, very beautiful. Okay, thank you. And so for a few meals, you know, I watched that happening. And then I thought, okay, I make a determination not to give in to the desire to look for the rest of the retreat, which I did. And I managed. You know, it was just to have this firm determination, no, I won't look anymore. Still the desire, you know, today you can look. <laughs> or maybe the meditations before lunch weren't so good, you know, and, you know, just a little treat, have a look, <laughs> beautiful scenery. No, not giving in. And in this way to see how much freedom there is in being able to decide whether or not I want to act on a desire. You know, people think their freedom consists in just doing what they want. I have the freedom to do this, I have the freedom to do that, I have the freedom to eat ice cream when I want, I have the freedom uh, to go to the movies, 
and so on. But seen from a Dhamma perspective, this is not freedom. It is be, this is being enslaved by one's desires, by one's cravings, by one's attachments. And so the real freedom is not to just impulsively follow, act out one's desires, but to see them and then to decide whether or not I want to act on this desire. So then it's not a blind reaction, but um, considerate action I do. And I mean, yes, we, we need to decide, do I want to do this or that? And when I'm hungry, you know, um, to decide, okay, I will eat something and so on. But really, to have the freedom to decide whether or not I want to act. Uh, on a desire or an aversion. What are the Buddha's views on taking one's life? Whether it be suicide or voluntary euthanasia. I ask this as I'm aware of dignitas in Switzerland and wondered how it was viewed. Dignitas is an organization in Switzerland that helps people with what they call assisted suicide. And in Switzerland, that's legal. That's why many people from abroad, from other countries where it's not legal, come to Switzerland to, to do that. Um, the, the Buddha's view on taking one's own life. You know, we know, he said, don't Take, um, one should observe the precept of not taking life, so also including one's own life, saying that the taking of life is an unwholesome action, produces, is unwholesome karma, which produces unwholesome results, and in the Buddhist cosmology, with different levels of existence. So a result of that unwholesome karma is rebirth in one of the um, lower realms of existence where um, suffering is predominant. There is one sutta that um, deals or is about a monk who has committed suicide, who has taken the knife, as it is said. And so um, this, that monk was sick. Then the Venerable Sariputta 
one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, and another monk went to see this sick monk and asked him, how are you doing? Are you getting better? Are your pains getting less? And then the monk said, no, I'm not getting better. The pain is not getting less. Um, and basically saying, well, I want to take or I will take the knife. But then Venerable Sariputta saying, no, no, don't take the knife. Uh, don't take the knife. And um, the sick monk said, kind of, no, I will take the knife. And then Venerable Sariputta asked him several questions, Dhamma questions, things like, do you consider the visible form? Do you consider eye consciousness? Do you consider the Vedana as being me, I, or mine? And then the monk saying, no, I don't consider these things to be I, me, or mine. I consider them to be not me, not my, not I. And so with that kind of Venerable Sariputta wanted to find out whether he had some deep understanding of the Dhamma or whether he was an Arahant or not. And so finally, Venerable Sariputta and the other monk left. The monk went to the Buddha. And it is said that after the two monks left, the sick monk took the knife, committed suicide. And so Venerable Sariputta and the other monk going to the Buddha asking what would be the destination of this monk having committed suicide. And then the Buddha said that the monk, the monk's action was not blameful that it was not a blameful or a, that he was not to be blamed for his action, that his action was blameless. So what does that mean? <laughs> it's a bit cryptic, you know, I don't really uh, know. Then, of course, the commentaries to this sutta and the sub-commentaries, you know, they have all their own kind of explanation and one commentary is that the Buddha saying that his action was blameless, and that was referring to his sila. Um, you know, the three factors of, that belong to the sila group of the Noble Eightfold Path, basically saying that his bodily actions, his actions of speech, and his livelihood, that they were blameless. Again, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, usually if somebody uh, commits suicide, that's out of, you know, being fed up with one's life, with the pain, being in a depression, uh, being full of fear, worry, whatever. So it's usually a state uh, informed by dosa. And dying with dosa is said not to be very fortunate because that um, 
is not very conducive to rebirth in a good destination. So dying with dosa leads one to a bad destination. You know, you have maybe heard of Elisabeth Kübler-Ross. Um, she was Swiss, but then lived in the, in the United States, and she worked with the uh, terminal ill people, set up hospices, and so on. She wrote many books, and so her kind of take on on that, you know, when people are terminally ill, and you know, who would like to to finish their life, to take their life, to die, that you know, being in that state of dosa that it is not a very good way to go out of life. And so she says, you know, there are kind of five stages that people go through. So first of all, there is denial, denial of a sickness or uh, a state. And then comes the phase of being angry, you know, angry, why me and why not others, and angry at sickness, whatever. Then comes the phase of bargaining. Okay, you know, maybe if I change my diet, then uh, I can overcome it, or will get better, or do this, or do that. And after that, the phase that comes is usually depression. People get into this, this depressed state. And only after having gone through these different phases, do people come to a place of acceptance with the fact as it is? And then, you know, with acceptance, then there is the mind has calmed down, has become more peaceful, more at ease, and so then to die in that way is much better, much more beneficial. And so people you know, who want to have this assisted uh, suicide, maybe one, maybe they miss the chance to go through these phases and then come to that place of peace within, of acceptance. Another question, how, ma how might one deal with the grief and loss associated with death of loved ones, especially young people? Of, uh, of course, first of all, you know, acknowledge the grief, the loss, the emotions that come up, you know, not wanting to deny them or think I should not feel the grief and the loss of a beloved one. But then also, and this might come through reflection and reading about people who have gone through the same situation or similar situations, understanding that 
you know, to get stuck in this grief for months and years or the whole life is not really helpful, whether, uh, nor for the person who has died, nor for myself, nor for my family or uh, the environment I live. So would it be possible, you know, to replace or to actively try to establish wholesome uh, states of mind that help me overcoming the, the grief? I want to relate the story of a family who lived in South Africa. This was during the time of the apartheid regime. They had a daughter, and this daughter was brutally murdered by a group of young men. Of course, a big loss for the parents. But instead of, you know, being lost in the grief about their beloved daughter, instead of getting angry, uh, have hatred for these young men who killed her daughter. They were caught, put into prison. But then what the parents did was they asked for the amnesty of these young men to be released from the prison. And not only that, then they established an organization in the town or the township where they lived an organization to help people in this township, to help the poor people, to help the young unemployed people, to, to give them work or to um, have programs they could engage in to do something meaningful with their lives. So they established this organization, set up programs, and then when the young men were uh, got amnesty, the parents employed them in their organization to run uh, the organization, to run programs. It's quite amazing <laughs> that people are able to do such things. And so in that way, you know, they, or their grief, the loss of their daughter really helped them um, to step out of the shadow or to step out of that uh, grief about the loss of their daughter and use that energy for something very meaningful, very helpful. Another story that I've heard is that of a um, mother in L.A., Los Angeles, whose uh, son was killed. In LA, apparently, there were, there are many gangs, some of just teenagers, and to be part of that particular gang, kind of to be accepted, um, one had to kill another person. And so that young 
man. You know, he wanted to be part of that gang, but um, to be accepted, he needed to kill somebody. So he killed a boy. But um, he was caught, put into prison. And the mother of the boy who had been killed, um, of course, um, felt the loss of her beloved son. But then she started to go to the prison and visit that other young man who had killed her son. And she would bring him little presents, a bar of chocolate, maybe a t-shirt next time, some toothpaste, just little things. And so then after some years, uh, that young man um, they they allowed him to take up some work or to do an apprenticeship somewhere, still kind of under a survey. And um, then it was also if somebody would take that young man so that he could live in a family, that would also be um, possible. And so then it was the mother uh, whose son was killed who said, okay, I will take that young man. He can live with me. I will give him a home. And so then he could move to that woman, lived with her, went to work, did his work, and they got along quite well better and better, and the mother really treated this young man like her own son. And one day when they had a meal, uh, the young man said uh, to his kind of new mother, mom, you know, uh, at the court, I heard you saying, I'm going to kill you. But you know, you have not killed me. Actually, you have been very kind to me, coming to see me in the prison, bringing me all these presents, and now, you know, being able to live with you, you're treating me like your own son. So, why did you say that? What did you mean? And then the mother said, yes, it's true. I said that at court, and what I meant was, I'm going to kill the murderer in you. And I think I've done quite well, haven't I? <laughs> so these are just two examples to show that you know, there are ways of overcoming one's grief or, you know, the energy released by grief to kind of transform it into doing something meaningful, useful. The Buddha had its own way to make somebody understand 
that you know to lose a child that can happen and that a mother is not the only one who loses her child that other mothers too uh, can lose their child this is the story of Kisa Gotami you may know to make it short so this uh, lady she had a little son had a son and you know it was only with the birth of her son that she was accepted into the family of her husband but then uh, very shortly after she had given birth the son died and so for this for her that was um, big suffering because she knew then her husband and her parents-in-law would treat her very badly again as she had been treated before and so she just could not accept the death of her little son so she took her son uh, went into town and asked people saying you know my son is sick do you have some medicine for my son and people looked at their little baby and they said well it's death dead there is no medicine but she was so full of grief you know she went to the next person can you give me some medicine for my son well it's dead there is no medicine so finally she ended up where the Buddha was giving a talk to some people and um, so she went up to him and said please please can you give me some medicine for my son the Buddha realizing that the little boy was dead said he didn't just say well it's dead you know there is no medicine but he said well you know go into town and bring me some mustard seeds from a house where nobody has died ever. And Kisa Gotami thought, oh well, yeah, that's easy to get because apparently mustard seeds were in every house. People use them for cooking, a common ingredient. So she went into town, knocked at the first house and said, please, can you give me some mustard seeds? And the person said, oh yes, no problem, you know, here, you can have some. And then she said, well, they must come from a house where nobody has died ever. And then the person would say, oh, well, sorry, but um, my aunt just has died three weeks ago. Okay, Kisa Gotami went to the next house, asked for the mustard seeds. Oh, yes, yes, but, well, no, um, my grandfather has died last year. Next house, mustard seeds. Yes, yes. But, oh, well, no, um, my daughter has died, and so on. Each house, she got the same reply, somebody had died. And so when she came to the last houses, she realized, oh, well, death is so common. You know, it doesn't only happen to my son, other families too. They grieve the loss of their beloved ones. And so it was only with that that she finally could accept the death of her little son. And only then was she able 
to bring it to the charnel ground and to leave it there. Next question. I'm a hospice palliative care nurse in the field for past 20 years. It is of no surprise then that the subject of death is of utmost interest. Please can you share with us why, when given a terminal cancer diagnosis, you choose not to face death at that time, but choose treatment, cure? Yes, good question. <laughs> you know, dealing with death that might come very soon, facing death, but then also, you know, reflecting on the fact that the life as a human being is so precious. It's that this is actually the most precious form uh, to have because in this human existence we have good conditions for practicing the Dhamma. Not too much happiness and sense pleasures like the beings in the heavenly realms, not too much suffering as beings in the lower realms. So here in the human realm we have a good mix of pleasure and pain and the Dhamma is available. So given the fact that human life is such a precious form of existence and having met the Dhamma, practicing the Dhamma, so um, I chose treatment or surgery of the melanoma to make further use of this human life to further deepen my practice and you know making use of modern uh, medicine that offers such treatment you know it was a very basic treatment in the first place just uh, cut out the melanoma and then for me it was like okay then to see that time I did not have any other treatment And so then, when the metastasis appeared, again, you know, making use of, of modern medicine, choosing amputation of the leg, kind of an easy surgery, <laughs> apparently nothing difficult. <laughs> um, and uh, so make further use of being alive to, to practice the Dhamma, to share the Dhamma. So I was, was telling myself, okay, if the universe wants me a little bit longer around, uh, giving me the opportunity to further deepen my practice and wanting me to share the Dhamma with other people, okay, um, why not make use of modern medicine to give it a try. I mean, it's all about, you know, how much do we cling to life and 
to every possible medical treatment that is available. If one fails doing the next one, and then that fails doing the next one, and then thanks for that. You know, that's real attachment to life and craving uh, not to die or trying to escape death, not wanting to face death. Next question. Sufferers affected by advanced dementia, they cannot eat, nor dress, nor toilet themselves. They do not recognize loved ones. How can a practicing Buddhist come to understand this? One, as a relative of someone with dementia. Two, as someone to whom this diagnosis has been given. Yes, you know, as worldwide, it seems that more and more people uh, are suffering from dementia, from Alzheimer, also because people are getting older. And so, how to come to understand this? You know, I myself, I was... I am confronted with this as my father um, is suffering from Alzheimer's dementia. He got his diagnosis about five years ago and then four years ago my mother died and so since then I have been taking care of my father for altogether about six months of the year, the other six months practicing and teaching the Dhamma. And so it has been a very deep learning process, you know, being with my father, seeing his decline, seeing that things he doesn't know, he doesn't remember anymore, and gradually not being able to dress himself, to go to the toilet himself, needing help with eating, and so on. And so, I mean, on a physical level, what is happening when the people start uh, to suffer from dementia, Alzheimer? Why does the brain or the mind not function uh, correctly anymore? Why does, a peop- why does a person forget things, does not recognize people anymore, starts to be unable to dress himself, herself? I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, to watch this, to be a witness uh, to this, it's just so interesting to see. And then also to see that once in a while there are these, what I call, bright moments. All of a sudden, my father then remembered something that seemed to be forgotten, or he made a comment. I go, wow, (laughs) Um, interesting. So it's just one thing I really was learning was to be more patient and understanding 
and I considered myself to be quite a patient person. Others, um, you know, thinking that I was quite patient. But really that uh, taught me another le le um, level of being patient. You know, you know, when people tell you the same things, 10 times, 20 times, 100 times, <laughs> asking the same question again and again, you know, um, will we go into town this afternoon? Not today, tomorrow, two minutes later. Will we go into town this afternoon? Not today, tomorrow, I have said. Will we go into town this afternoon? <laughs> You know, sometimes, well, I, haven't I told you we go tomorrow? <laughs> but really coming to an understanding for that person, each question is anew, is fresh. Everything else has gone. The person doesn't remember that I had told her it's tomorrow. Or the person doesn't remember that he has asked the same question two minutes ago. For him it's this... Do we go into town this afternoon? And so, trying to be there also as if the person asked the question for the first time. No, we are not going into town. Are we going into town? No, we are not going into town. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I was getting better at it. And then sometimes I notice kind of the, come on. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just felt it inside and outwardly, you know. I could say, no, no, not today. <clears throat> um, so then another thing that I realized and started to learn is that, you know, if the communication on an intellectual level is difficult or even not possible anymore, then what counts is just uh, the communication on the emotional level. Because that is there. And so just to be present with the person on that level, you know, like, yeah, no, not today. We'll go tomorrow. Or, you know, telling something, you have done this today or that, or do you remember? Or, you know, uh, when we were young, we went skiing in the mountains, and, you know, it was so lovely, and uh, sometimes the weather was sunny, and sometimes there was snow, and you remember when I, or sometimes I, uh, one time I fall down, and you had to pick me up, and the ski was broken, you know, just engage in communication with the person, even though the person might not react to the contents of the words, not to the story, but to stay in connection, to stay engaged with the person. Because I also notice with myself, then, you know, thinking, well, he doesn't really understand the words, what I say, why then bother talking to him? But you know, they want to engage, they want to communicate. And sometimes, or now my father is at the stage where lots of what he's saying is just gibberish. 
I really don't know what he wants to say, but he actually wants to say something, explain something, and you know, even with his hands, he kind of goes like this and like that. And so, just to be there, be present, and you know, say yes, yes, or you think it's like this. Mm-hmm. And also uh, seeing that my father and from what I've heard from others and reading in books that uh, these people um, react very strongly to music because again that's relating on an emotional level and so my father likes the Swiss traditional folk music so then, either singing uh, songs for him, with him, sometimes he joins for bits of it, or then uh, playing his favorite music. And, you know, so it's beautiful to see then. He hears the music and immediately the face, his being brightens up. Clearly obvious that there is a uh, an emotional response. And when he was a bit more steady on, on his legs, um, still was able to walk, although a bit unsteady, but then realizing that I could dance with him, just taking his hands and you know making little st- uh, steps or shaking a little bit back and forth. And what I found amazing was that with the music, he was more stable on his legs. So that gave him some stability. So I mean, I still can learn a lot uh, from just being together uh, with my father. And the person, you know, dealing with it, um, having probably much more experience with people who suffer from dementia. And then, how to understand this as someone to whom this diagnosis has been given? I don't know. (laughs) If I were given the diagnosis of, you know, having beginning dementia, suffering from Alzheimer, difficult, I don't know. But probably hopefully understanding that losing some mental faculties of remembrance and uh, recognizing people and losing the ability to certain things, daily activities, that hopefully this would not diminish my sense of, you know, being a human being. You know, that I would be less than a human being or not a complete human being. Trying to understand that, you know, on a 
cognitive level that was I would be impaired but hopefully not on a on an emotional uh, level. Well, actually, this is also a question for tomorrow, <laughs> dealing with practicing in day-to-day -day life. I just had it at the back, thinking that um, if there was time uh, for this, you know, if the other questions would be answered so quickly that um, there was still a lot of time to talk, then I could address this. But now I see... Um, Well, it's one and a half hours now. <laughs> That's enough for now. So, just let's sit quietly for a few moments to let it sink in. Thank you so much for your interest and your good questions. And maybe you have some more profound answers to the first question <laughs> about the millipedes, where they are coming from and where they are going to.